about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. These are the terms of the covenant the Lord commanded Moses to make with the Israelites in Moab. In addition to the covenant he had made with them at Horeb, Moses summoned all the Israelites and said to them, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord did in Egypt to Pharaoh, to all his officials, and to all his land. With your own eyes you saw those great trials, those miraculous signs, and great wonders. But to this day the Lord has not given you a mind that understands, or eyes that see, or ears that hear. During the 40 years that I led you through the desert, your clothes did not wear out, nor did the sandals on your feet. You ate no bread and drank no wine or other fermented drink. I did this so that you might know that I am the Lord, your God. When you reached this place, Sihon, king of Hezbon, and Og, king of Bashan, came out to fight against us. But we defeated them. We took their land and gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Carefully follow the terms of this covenant so that you may prosper in everything you do. All of you are standing today in the presence of the Lord your God, your leaders and chief men, your elders and officials, and all the other men of Israel, together with your children and your wives and the aliens living in your camps who chop your wood and carry your water. You are standing here in order to enter into a covenant with the Lord your God a covenant the Lord is making with you this day and sealing with an oath to confirm you this day as his people, that he may be your God as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am making this covenant with its oath, not only with you who are standing here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God, but also with those who are not here today. You yourselves know how we lived in Egypt and how we passed through the countries on the way here. You saw among them the detestable images and idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold. Make sure there's no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Make sure there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison. When such a person hears the words of this oath, he invokes a blessing blessing on himself and therefore thinks, I will be safe, even though I persist in going my own way. This will bring disaster on the watered land as well as the dry. The Lord will never be willing to forgive him. His wrath and zeal will burn against that man. All the curses written in this book will fall upon him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. The Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for disaster, according to all the curses of the covenant written in this book of the law. Your children who follow you in later generations and foreigners who come from distant lands will see the calamities that have fallen on the land and the diseases with which the Lord has afflicted it. The whole land will be a burning waste of salt and sulfur, Nothing planted, nothing sprouting, no vegetation growing on it. 
It will be like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in fierce anger. All the nations will ask, why has the Lord done this to this land? Why this fierce burning anger? And the answer will be, it is because this people abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, the covenant he made with them when he brought them out of Egypt. They went off and worshipped other gods and bowed down to them. Gods they did not know, gods he had not given them. Therefore, the Lord's anger burned against this land so that he brought on it all the curses written in this book. In furious anger and in great wrath, the Lord uprooted them from their land and thrust them into another land as it is now. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. Second reading comes from Ephesians on page 1156, chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the, the faithful in Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purposes of his will in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, a pro the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the glory to the praise of his glory. Well, good evening. My name's Roger Ray, I'm one of the ministers here, and where we can see the finish line. We've been going through Deuteronomy over the last six or seven weeks, years, no, six or seven weeks, and 
we can see the finish line. Uh, next week we're taking a break and we're going to do Titus for four weeks. So we can see the finish line, but we're not quite there. Um, and we kind of expect in Deuteronomy to kind of keep pedalling through straight to the finish line, but Deuteronomy does something quite unusual. It takes a very different view at this particular point. I know some of you are familiar with the Tour de France. And I don't know whether you've ever watched it. Um, very often, as the Tour de France goes along, you're in the peloton and, and you, you're kind of riding with the riders. Well, you're not, well, you're watching them anyway, as they go through all those curves and all those mountains. And it's like in Deuteronomy, we've been in the peloton. We've been wandering through all the backs and forths of this covenant and we've been trying to think about all the rules and laws and things like that. And then in the Tour de France, every now and then, as you're riding in the peloton, you suddenly zoom out and you can see all the mountains and all the roads and all the pelotons way down there. And it's kind of amazing, just a beautiful scenery. Well, that's what's happening in Deuteronomy tonight. We've been in the peloton, but now we're zooming back and we're looking at the big, big picture. And the focus here is on the covenant now, we don't use the word covenant very often, and so what do we mean by the uh, term covenant? Well, covenant, covenant is the term that you might use if you're going to establish a relationship that has obligations and oaths, obligations and promises, um, obligations and implications, if you like. Uh, one of the ones that we kind of use in, in our modern day is a wedding. We hear these words. In fact, did you know that James and Sally, Sally who comes here, are going to get married very shortly. They're going to be saying these words. In fact, did you know they're going to get married here on the 19th, 17th, 17th of September, just in a couple of weeks' time in our morning service. How about that? How exciting. They're going to be saying these words. Covenant, in the presence of God, I take you to be my wife or husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish as long as we both shall live. This is my solemn vow and promise. Here, the solemn vow and promise, there's the oath, there's the commitment, and there's an obligation towards one another. Well, what we've discovered in Deuteronomy is God has established a covenant with his people. And tonight in this passage, what I think we'll see is we'll see the covenant is founded on grace. The covenant has obligations and oaths, and the covenant has an enigmatic twist at the end. So come with me as we look at this uh, chapter on the covenant. It begins this way, this way. These are the words of the covenant the Lord commanded Moses to make with the Israelites in the land of Moab, in addition to the covenant he had made with them at Horeb or at Sinai. And so Moses begins his speech by saying, well, look, there's, there's this covenant that already has been established back at Mount Sinai. But in fact, you'll see that there's even a longer history in verse 10, you can see that they're standing there in front of the Lord your God and they're entering into a covenant and he talks about 
a covenant that was established in verse 13 with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. As he begins to speak about the covenant, he's thinking about the long, long history of the covenant. Now, if you were with us uh, a while ago at the beginning of Deuteronomy, we thought about that particular covenant that was established by Abram with God. Uh, We noticed that at the time um, of Abraham, uh, there were particular kinds of covenants entered into between kings and vassals or kings and people they'd captured. There would be a commitment and an oath given with these covenants. And usually the way it worked was basically the king would establish some rules and regulations and the vassal had to commit to them. And the way they would commit to them is by walking through the middle of dead carcasses. Carcasses, that are animals that had been split in two. The idea being, it sounds pretty gory, doesn't it? But the idea being that if you broke the covenant, you would be split in two yourself. That was the consequences of not keeping the covenant with the king. What we discovered um, earlier on in this series is that the covenant that was established with Abram had a particular character to it. Because when it came to the time of Abram passing through these carcasses which had been divided as part of the oath in the covenant, he fell asleep. Or he's put to sleep in Genesis chapter 15. We read this. So he bought all these things, they cut them in half, and as the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram. And then when the sun had been set and was dark, it's not Abraham that passes through these carcasses. It's God. A smoking firepot, a flaming torch, appeared and passed through the divided animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, I will give this land to your offspring. It's a really significant moment because Abram's not contributing in any way to this covenant. He's he's asleep. And effectively, what God is saying is, I'm making a covenant with you, my people, and if it fails, I'll be the one who's torn apart. Ultimately, this is a God of grace in action. Now, God's grace in action has continued to be shown in his faithfulness to this people. Because as you know, the people of Israel, as they gathered, then turned their backs on God. God made a covenant with them at Sinai. And not long after Sinai, they started wandering in the desert. And Moses reminds them of all this. These are the words of the covenant the Lord commanded Moses to make with the Israelites. Moses summoned all the Israel and said to them, You have seen with your own eyes everything the Lord did in Egypt to Pharaoh, to all his officials, to his entire land. You saw with your own eyes the great trials and those great signs and wonders. And so Moses stops for a moment before continuing with the covenant and he points out that they were once in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. And God worked to release them, to rescue them as part of his commitment to them in the covenant of grace. There were plagues. There was let my people go. There was chariots. 
There was the parting of the sea. And then finally, they make it to Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, they're given the Ten Commandments. A covenant is made. But once again, they fail. But then Moses tells us God continues to remain faithful. And he remains faithful in a, bad, in a way that would have been very bad for the chefs, uh, for the Brewsters and for the people who fi uh, fix shoes. See there in verse 5? I led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes and your sandals on your feet did not wear out. Can you imagine wearing the same clothes for 40 years? A fashion disaster. They didn't eat food or drink wine or beer. They certainly weren't Australians. Uh, what it basically meant is they were eating manna every day. Pretty boring diet. But yet God was providing for them. This was his commitment to them because of his covenant with his people. I will walk with you even in your punishment as you wander around for 40 years in the wilderness. God's covenant is founded on grace and expressed in his faithfulness to his people. And his persistent faithfulness is what has brought them to this spot. What's also interesting about the covenant that Moses is speaking of here is that this covenant is extremely inclusive. See there in verse 10. All of you are standing today before the Lord your God, your leaders, tribes, elders, officials, all the men of Israel, your dependents, your wives, and the resident aliens in your camps who cut wood and draw your water, so that you may enter into the covenant of the Lord your God, which he is making with you this very day. The other day I was looking on Sydney University's website, and it tells me that Sydney University is a very inclusive um, university. In fact, they've been inclusive for the last 160 years. Diversity and inclusion are one of the big things they stand for. They said they were the first university in Australia to admit women on the same basis as men. In fact, my wife Jane's grandmother was one of the first pharmacists that went through. They've been committed to diversity. They've been incredibly inclusive, and yet there's a problem. If you continue to read, the only reason you can attend the university is based on academic merit. You have to be good enough to get in. It's tremendously inclusive until it comes to academic merit. You have to be good enough to get in. Well, this covenant that has been established with the people of God includes everybody. You don't have to have academic merit to belong to this covenant. You can chop wood. You can draw water. You can be a leader. You can be a resident alien. God welcomes all. This is the covenant of grace. God provides it in the beginning. He shows it in his commitment to his people. He, he shows it in his commitment to provision of food and water and clothes. And he shows it in his inclusiveness, in the way he treats people, no matter what status 
they have in life. That's the covenant of grace. But as we mentioned earlier, this covenant of grace has a fundamental demand or an obligation under oath. And that is, in the first instance, a total renunciation of all other gods and idols. It's actually the sort of thing we hear in the wedding service. Will you give her or him the honour due to her as your wife, forsaking all others, love and protect her as long as you both shall live? Forsaking all others? Well, that's the demand of this covenant. If you're going to be part of this covenant, you've got to forsake all others. See there in verse 16? Indeed, you know how we lived in the land of Egypt and passed through the nations where you travelled. You saw their abhorrent images and their idols made of wood and stone and silver and gold that were among them. Be sure there is no man, woman, clan, tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord your God and goes to worship the gods of those nations. Be sure that there is no root amongst you bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. They are warned. If you're going to be part of this covenant, you have an obligation to honour God first. To have him above all other gods, to have him exclusively as God. To not worship other idols. Now for them it would have been extremely tempting to worship other idols. All the nations around them were worshipping other idols. They could see the stone and wood. They knew what idols were like. They could see the power in other people's lives and they probably wanted some of it. But God is saying to them, if you're going to be part of this covenant, the demand I have is that I be exclusively your God. Now, as many of you would know, Tim Keller's done a whole lot of thinking about this idea of idolatry. And he speaks of it in terms of a distortion of truth about God's goodness. And therefore, for us, an idol is more like anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to follow instead of God first. we too can be seduced by idols, by the idols of approval and success and power. And I reckon in Sydney we can be seduced by the ideal of idol of material wealth. Just today I was talking to someone whose property had increased 900,000 in the last 10 years. We in Sydney are very seduced by material things. And it's possible for that to take hold of our hearts and for us to put that first instead of God. Now, we ought not to fool ourselves because as Moses speaks, he warns us that it's easy for us to pretend that we're putting God first. See there in verse 19? When someone hears the words of this oath, he may consider himself exempt. I will have peace even though I follow my own stubborn heart. Wow, what an insight. <laughs> insight into our own hearts. You know that the, the, the way we sometimes fool ourselves, we say, I can follow this as well as this. 
I can do this as well as follow God. I'm surely I can balance both those things and put them in the same place. Well, the people of Israel had that problem. And Moses says, I'm warning you, you can't do it. You've got to put God first in everything. Now, just how serious he is about this becomes very evident in the curses that take place. Verse 20, speaking of the person who turns their back on God and follows these other idols, the Lord will not be willing to forgive him. Instead, his anger and jealousy will burn against that person and every curse which is written in this skull will descend on him. The Lord will blot out his name, single him out for harm from all the tribes of Israel according to all the curses of the covenant written in this book of law. If you flip back a chapter, you will see there's lots and lots of curses. It's a very strong and powerful word to the people of Israel. It's saying there are significant consequences for not following the Lord your God. You will sit under his judgment. Under a judgment you will not be able to bear. Feel the weight of what he's saying. It's so powerful. Moses is so concerned for the people because he knows their hearts and he knows the way they will turn. He explains this is serious. They are under obligation because they're in a covenant with God. Now that leads him to say a second thing, which is pretty challenging for us and for the people of Israel. See there in verse 18. Be sure there's not a man or a woman, a clan or a tribe amongst you whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Be sure that there is no root amongst you bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. He's calling the people of Israel to look out for one another. He's calling the leaders to have insight into what's going on because he knows that if a bitter root starts to find its way into the life of the people of Israel, it will bear poisonous fruit. It will start to affect the clans, the tribes, individual people, men and women, their families, and it will start to mean they turn away from the living God to worship other idols. Now, the New Testament picks this up as well. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, we read, See to that, that none of you fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, so that many may become defiled. The New Testament too is concerned about this notion of a bitter root growing amongst the people of God. And I think that's also why in 1 Corinthians 15, as we saw last year, Paul is so concerned when he sees something going wrong within the life of the congregation. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 6, he says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, 
as you really are, for Christ is your Passover lamb and he has been sacrificed. There's a warning here to the people of Israel to keep an eye on what's taking place amongst them. Their leaders are to see that there are no bitter fruit. There's no bitter fruit growing. And I take it that that's our responsibility as well, to speak into each other's lives, to help each other, to say, hey, I noticed, I wonder if you're taking a different trajectory here. I wonder if you're moving off in a way that leads you away that actually might become a bitter fruit, not only to you, but to those people around you. Now, to be honest, as a church leader, I find this one of the most difficult areas of church life. Occasionally, I've had to speak into people's lives uh, to to, to say to them, "Are, are you sure that this is the direction God is leading you? And many ministers have had to do this in many different churches. We, did, we don't take, no, take any pleasure in this whatsoever, but sometimes it's about things like anger or the use of money within church life or just use of money. Occasionally it's been about uh, people who are behaving in relationships like they're married when they're not married. And that's all obviously awkward and difficult. And the idea of church discipline is just, oh, feels really awful particularly here in Australia, can I say, because we don't like people in authority. We have all kinds of trouble with that. And then the awkwardness of actually speaking to someone and and pointing out that actually there's there's a trajectory here that's not going right when you know the sinfulness of your own, you know, all the things that go with that. And yet Moses' command to the people of Israel is so that others do not go astray. Is so that the people of God worship the one true God. Because he knows they can't do both things at once. They can't follow something else as well as worship the one true God. And that's the same for us. We cannot do those two things as at once. We are under obligation in the covenant of grace. But of course you've noticed a problem, haven't you? There's no way we can live up to those standards that are being demanded of us. You think about the Ten Commandments that have been given in Deuteronomy. Is anyone here able to obey all of them? Or even any of them? And so what logically follows is that we're under the curse. Like the people of Israel. We haven't kept up our end up of the obligation in the covenant of grace. We have completely failed. Which then brings us to the final point and the idea of an enigmatic twist which we can see through this passage. Throughout this passage, there's some hints that something else is going on. Just some hints like shadows of things. See in verse 4, Yet to this day the Lord has not given you a mind to understand and eyes to see and ears to hear. Interesting here. God is keeping these people accountable for their behaviour and yet there seems to be a darkness and an ability to see what is going on and I think that's probably why Moses has been so strong about their past and what God has done he's hoping that they can see what well, do you see there in verse 29 that last verse there 
The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of his law. There's, there's something else going on. There's something else starting to develop. It's almost as if Moses is peering a little bit into the future. You see there in verse 1, you see it's the addition of a covenant to the one in Mount Sinai. We see that Moses has this picture of a covenant that is not made only with these people, but with the people to come. There's all kinds of interesting things starting to be said. And Moses is starting to say things that don't quite fit the exact pattern. And I think what's going on here is that Moses is foreshadowing something that will come. One of the beautiful things that happens when Jesus comes is he deals with the curse that we're under. You might remember that wonderful passage in Galatians. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. You see, Jesus knew that we could not bear that curse. He knew that we had failed. And he comes and he hangs on the tree, on the cross, and he takes the curse that we deserve. And as he takes that curse and as we start to understand that, we start to see and understand it starts to be revealed to us these mysteries that are spoken of here in Deuteronomy chapter 29. Remember in our Ephesians passage, we read these wonderful words. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Notice the theme of God's grace working its way through again. That he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us, wait for it, the mystery of his will according to his own good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. We are the beneficiaries of what Christ has done. He has taken the curse for us. And it's in light of that, we can then live out in obedience to him. In light of what he's done, in light of this enigmatic twist in the story, that we can then be obedient in our lives. We can be empowered to be obedient. And it's the, to the extent that we understand that is the extent to which we will worship the one and only God. Not only in what we think, but in what we do. And so this evening I invite you to worship the one true God who sent his son to die in your place to take the curse of you. Praise the response to what we've heard. Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. 
For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.